Welcome to Know Your Bible, a program presented by the Churches of Christ and devoted to helping you understand God's Word. The Bible is a book inspired by God and it contains answers to your questions. The Bible reveals Jesus and explains His sacrifice, it contains God's plan for the family, and timeless principles of parenting. It also has the truth about life and death. The Bible contains great financial advice and also answers questions of morality. Join us as we look for answers to your questions and help you know your Bible. Good morning. Welcome to Know Your Bible. We're glad you've joined us today and we're going to try to answer as many of your questions as we can today. That's what this program is. It's a question and answer program. You provide the questions. Uh, we try to find the answers. And our goal is to help everybody know their Bible a little bit better. So if you've got a Bible question, something you've always wondered, uh, something you thought, is that really in the Bible? Does the Bible teach that? Or where is something? I've heard this and I wonder if that's true. We'll try to find an answer. If you've got something going on in your family or you're reading the newspaper and you think, how could the, uh, we be in this situation? What's the Bible say about that? We'll try to find an answer for those kind of questions also. Phone number and the website are at the bottom of the screen. Use those anytime to get in touch with us and tell us what you'd like us to talk about on Know Your Bible. Toby Levering's back this morning. Good morning, Toby. Good morning, Steve. Glad you're here and ready to go. And I've studied up a little bit. We'll see if we can answer a few questions for the folks here today. But first of all, let me give you the viewers a question. Uh, who was known as a reckless driver? If you get any teenagers in the family, <laughs> ask them if they know who was the reckless driver in the Bible. And we'll give you an answer to that at the end of the program and see if you got it right. All right, got a yep. family question got a, here. A specific a maternal question. Who was Abraham's mother, the viewer would like to know? Well, the direct answer to the question is the Bible does not say, the Bible does not tell us who Abraham's mother was. Uh, under the, uh, especially under the patriarchal age, um, the men were often focused on more than the women. And so when you see genealogies, often the names of the men are listed as opposed to the names of the women, the mothers and sisters. And not that they weren't important, not that they didn't have a role to play, but that's just how they listed genealogies at the time. And <clears throat> Abrams was, wasn't, was one of those whose, uh, whose mother we do not know. Genesis 11:26 says his father's name was Ter Terah or Terah, depending on how you pronounce it. And, um, but as far as his mother's name, the scriptures simply do not reveal it, so we don't know it. And that's the short answer. All right, thank you. <laughs> uh, Viewer wants us to discuss something more on the program, and this is the way he worded it. Please discuss the resurrection more on the air. Uh, my answer to that is that's a good request, and I'd like to discuss the resurrection more. Uh, the trouble is this program is called Know Your Bible, uh, so we try to stay to what the Bible says about things, and the Bible doesn't tell us much about the resurrection. Uh, a lot of the things that we read and hear uh, from society or people, preachers or anybody about the resurrection is supposition. And we don't know exactly how things are going to work. And, uh, we can piece together kind of a uh, process that we think we're going to go through, but there's not much Bible about exactly how the resurrection and judgment day and all that is going to work. Uh, what I will do is share my favorite thing about the resurrection. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul discusses the resurrection of the body. 
And it's an interesting discussion because what had happened was he had gone to Corinth, he had started the church there, and he told them, Jesus is going to come back. Now, that's all they knew in the first century was Jesus coming back and going to take us to heaven. Well, Paul left Corinth, and after he left, some people there began to die. And that made everybody in Corinth nervous because, whoa, Jesus hasn't come back yet. And old brother so-and-so is dead now, and what's going to happen when Jesus comes back? He's not here waiting for him. <clears throat> so they wrote to Paul or sent a messenger to him and said, what's going to happen? And Paul wrote part of 1 Corinthians 15, and it's such a comforting section because he basically says, don't worry about it. It's going to be all right. There is going to be a resurrection. And even though brother so-and-so is dead and buried now, it's going to be all right. And he uses the picture of burying a seed and something even better coming up. And that's his picture. And let's start with the passage in chapter 15, verse 42. And after he talks about the seed coming up as a whole beautiful different plant, he says, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Great passage about the resurrection. When we go to the cemetery uh, to bury our loved ones, uh, if they're Christians, we can be confident that we're burying a perishable, uh, weak, uh, physical body, and it's going to be raised a spiritual, powerful, strong, glorious body that is imperishable. So that's my favorite passage about the resurrection. And uh, we may try to find some ways to work more resurrection things in in the future. But uh, like I said, the Bible doesn't talk a whole lot about the resurrection. You're right. That chapter is a great chapter. <laughs> I love the, the sentiment that he gives. I was going to read verse he, verse 19. He says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be more pitied than all men. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. I mean, that's where our hope lies. That's where our security lies. When that tomb was empty, you know, we uh, we have been filled and uh, gives us yep. great hope. I yep. love to hear those verses. Yep. No, I so. understand why the viewer would like to hear more, yeah. but and not a whole lot in there. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> okay, if you were asked the question, uh, what two books did Luke write? Well, um, I'm going to tell you the answer, but you're not going to find that answer directly within the Scripture. It comes from histor history and looking at the context of verses. But Luke wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And uh, they were, some surmise that it was kind of a two-part book or letter uh, that Luke was writing to a man by the name of Theophilus. And uh, Luke takes the effort to draw up an orderly account in the book of Luke about the life of Christ, the gospel, uh, as he viewed it and as it was told to him and all the eyewitness accounts. And then in Acts, he takes kind of the same approach uh, with the beginning and the growth of the early church after Jesus was resurrected, uh, after he was drawn up into heaven, and then the, the believers were left, uh, the apostles, uh, to spread the church in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. And so Luke records the growth of that and how that occurred. And it, it's even pretty cool. In the, last part of the book of Acts, he begins using phrases like we, the very first person 
And so we know that Luke was a part of there. He's right there, a companion of Paul, uh, helping him, uh, guiding the churches, going on the missionary journeys and things of that nature. So it's, it's really interesting, uh, but those are the two books that he wrote. Um, although he's not named specifically, it doesn't say, I, Luke, by my own hand, wrote this book. Uh, we can, by some basically deductive reasoning uh, and some, some textual hints, uh, where Paul says that Luke was his close companion and, and so forth, uh, that Luke was probably the guy. And the history of the church and uh, early Christian writers and uh, Jewish historians all point to Luke was the guy who wrote these books. So we'll read the beginning of both books, Luke chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 4 together. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And then the beginning of Acts, he writes in the same way, in my former book, Theophilus, I began, uh, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So Luke and Acts are the two uh, <coughs> books that Luke wrote, and he gave us a very orderly account of the life of Christ and the life of the early church. Good historian. Mm -hmm. He set it yep. out in order for us. All right, let me talk about <coughs> a good way to study the Bible, and uh, certainly Luke and Acts are a couple of good books to read if you just want to read the Bible. Uh, but we've got some ways to study the Bible uh, in a little different way, and we have some free materials that we'll send to you in the mail. Been doing this ever since the program's been on the air. And, uh, lots and lots of people have gone through these courses and uh, called back or write and tell us that they learned a lot about the Bible. So we'd have, be happy to share them with you. This is an opening uh, course that we have, and it's a very basic course, uh, just kind of general knowledge about the Bible. And there are eight lessons in it. Uh, when you're done with it, you'll know a lot more about the Bible, and you might have already formed a re good regular habit of Bible study and be ready for some more advanced courses, which we just happen to have and are happy to provide you. So uh, get started. Ask for Lesson 1. We'll send it to you. Uh, you'll learn a lot about the Old Testament and what that big part of your Bible is about. Send it back to us. We'll score it for you and then send it uh, with to back to you with lesson number two about the New Testament. So that's how you get started, and right away you'll know a whole lot about the Bible. So take us up on that. Phone number, website at the bottom of the screen. Uh, easy to get in touch with us and tell us you'd like that free course. It'll come your way, and I think you'll enjoy it. All right. Uh, we get a lot of questions about baptism. We get a lot of <coughs> questions about what we believe about baptism and what the Bible teaches. Uh, this viewer called in and says, Are you saying that you must be baptized to go to heaven? A lot of people just have been taught that no, baptism is not essential and don't worry about baptism. You can get there without it. Uh, so that just makes them nervous to hear somebody sound like, Yeah, you need to be baptized. Uh, so this viewer nailed it down. Are you really saying that you must? Be baptized. Uh, let me put it this way. I'm not saying that. What I'm doing, or what we are doing uh, on this program and in the Churches of Christ, is teaching the Bible. Now, let me tell you some things that the Bible teaches that are absolutely undeniable. Number one, the Bible teaches that Jesus commanded baptism. Jesus told his disciples before he left, go into all the world and teach people. Tell them about me. Spread the good news. Uh, 
He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. You can get all the Greek scholars you want to discount that, but any second grader can read the construction of that and see that he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Jesus commanded it. Second thing, every New Testament case of salvation ended in baptism. Everybody in the New Testament that came to Jesus Christ, that was became a Christian, that was put into Christ, whatever term you use, it happened at baptism. <clears throat> After baptism, the people in the New Testament went on their way rejoicing. After baptism, they were Christians. After baptism, they belonged to God. Everyone in the New Testament. Third thing that's undeniable, all through the Bible... Baptism is mentioned as the time, as the place when we are contacted with the blood of Christ, when we are put into Christ, we are baptized into Christ, when we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, when we get forgiveness of sins. All of those things are said to happen at baptism. Okay? So that's what we're teaching. We're telling you what the Bible says and from that, you can conclude what you want. If you want to try to get to heaven without baptism, you're free to try. But the Bible says those things about baptism. It's our job to teach the Bible. Now, I know people are free to create as many hypotheticals as they want. Well, what if? And what about this? And what about that? It's not our job. Our job is to teach the Bible. Uh, can you get to heaven without being baptized? If God wants to do it, that's fine with me. But all I've got is what he said in the Bible. That's our job to teach it. We do the best job we can of teaching that. Uh, we believe that the Bible teaches baptism is when salvation happens. You're not saved by baptism. The water isn't magic. It doesn't save you. But that's when God chose to contact the blood, to forgive sins, to administer the Holy Spirit, to put you into Christ, to do all the things that we want to do so we can go to heaven. So that's what we're teaching. I like how you phrase that. It doesn't really matter what we say because you know, we say one thing, we teach one thing, and they can go to their pastor, they can go to somebody else who will say something different. It really doesn't, you know, the opinions of men don't matter very much. You just go back to your Bible very clearly, just as you alluded to with Mark sixteen sixteen. You know, it says what it says. I mean, you can ignore it all you want, but that's what God says. Yep. So. All right, you got a hard one here, too. Yep. When does the soul enter the body, or is it in the body at birth? Okay, well, uh, let's, let me start out by saying <coughs> this is a little bit of speculation on my part. There's a, a great mystery uh, that, that happens in conception and, and the creation of a new human life and how God does that. It's a, it's a beautiful thing, um, and it's even one that very smart doctors and people who deal with it all the time, there's still mysteries in the womb, things that they don't fully understand how these things sort of happen. Um, to me, it points to all strong evidence of a loving creator, but that's probably for another question. Let's look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 together to start and look at what, what the scripture says. Uh, in the first creation, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Right? And that's interesting to me because here's this pile of dust that's created and formed and molded. And, uh, you know, we can do the same today with our science advancements. We can clone 
tissue and ligaments and bone and muscle. We could do all that, but the one thing we lack the ability to do is to breathe life into the human body to give it the, the soul, the pneumos, the, the spirit that allows the man what makes the, the body alive. And so it, it is this God breathe, what we call the soul, that is where the eternal peace of our bodies begins and uh, never ends, even when our bodies end. Now, we look at Psalm chapter 139, verse 16, which says, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. <clears throat> so with human beings especially, there is this eternal piece of us that pre-exists our physical bodies and goes on and beyond our physical bodies. And God created that piece and he formed that piece and he knows that piece. And, and that's the part that, uh, you know, when that enters the body, does that happen the moment that the DNA meets together? That's the part I don't know. I'm going to guess that's probably when it is, but really only God knows uh, in truth. So um, my, that's my speculation. I do believe that life begins at conception and that's where it starts. When exactly and how exactly that happens, still a beautiful mystery uh, that God has uh, in our created world. <coughs> So. All right, thank you. Let me take this moment to talk about visiting a Church of Christ near you. Uh, we like to mention a few Churches of Christ each week that help keep us on the air. That's who brings you this program. There's different uh, congregations and members of Churches of Christ around the country. Uh, let me mention today two from the uh, Central Kansas area, the Oxford Kansas Church and the Pratt Kansas Church. Uh, both are folks that support this program. Uh, if you live out around Pratt, you can hear Steve Triplett preach out there, and I know you'd enjoy meeting him and good wife Debbie. Great bunch of folks out there at Pratt. Uh, they'd welcome you anytime for a visit or whatever you might need in that community. If you're looking for a church home, it'd be a great place to try out. Uh, or if you just know somebody in that church and uh, they don't know that you watch the program, you might tell them. Uh, I enjoy watching that program that you guys provide for us, and I know they'll appreciate that. Of course, any place you're watching uh, Know Your Bible, there may be a Church of Christ near you, and we invite you to drop in and uh, give them a thanks. Or if you're looking for a church home, be a great place to visit. So if you live in Wichita, of course, the home church of Know Your Bible is Northside Church of Christ up on North Meridian on the way to Valley Center. Stop in and visit us sometime. We'd be glad to meet any of our viewers. All right, if you're worried about uh, which Bible we use on this program, and the question is, why are you not using the authorized version of the Bible? Uh, the King James is what they call the authorized <coughs> version. Uh, we do mostly, Toby and I use the New International Version on the program. We'll use another translation occasionally. Uh, Bill used to use the New American Standard <laughs> predominantly. And uh, Lewis, when he was with us, used to use the King James or the New King James uh, predominantly. So we have used different translations and will use different ones in the future. Uh, but this viewer has got a misconception. The question is, why are you not using the authorized version? And this viewer evidently thinks there is one version that is authorized and that's what you ought to use. And I know where that misconception comes from. Let's look at the uh, front piece of an old King James Bible. And I 
put the real copy on the left and then I translated it for you on the right into a little easier print to read. And what it says is the whole Bible, Holy Bible, containing the Old and New Testament translated out of the original tongues and with the former translations diligently compared and revised. The authorized King James Version. All right. Now, that doesn't mean it's the only authorized Bible in the world. What it means, it is a translation that was authorized by King James back in 1611. Uh, King James decided there ought to be a more modern translation of the Bible. So he got a number of scholars together and told them, translate the Bible. They did, and they took it to him, and he authorized it. He said, okay, this is a good translation. This is authorized by me. You can read it. Well, that was 1611. Uh, there is no authorized version or official version of the Bible. There are lots of different translations. Some of them are easier to read. Some of them are more accurate. Some of them are more modern. Uh, most of them are more modern than the 1611 King James Version. Uh, our language has changed and we have more modern uh, terminology than the old King James used to use. Still a great translation, uh, but it's not the authorized Version. It's the authorized by King James version. So I hope that helps you understand uh, that. Uh, let me show you three versions that we think are great ones. Uh, King James is a good one. Uh, New King James is probably a little better because they cleaned up, uh, modernized some of the language, not so many these and thous and all of that. New American Standard's good. New International Version's good. Uh, and lately we've been saying that the ESV, English Standard Version, is also a good translation to, to use and easy to read. So uh, that's what we use on this program. Hope that helps you understand what's authorized and what's not. All right, Toby, dance around this one. Yeah, I'll try to. What does the Bible say about liturg liturgical dance? Sorry. <laughs> um, well, the Bible doesn't mention it specifically. Uh, as far as they have defined it here, uh, liturgical dance is, uh, by, by strict definition, is dance that is incorporated into the liturgies or worship service, an expression of prayer or worship through body movement. And there are occasions in the <coughs> Old Testament uh, where people dance to the Lord. Of course, the famous one is when David was bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. Uh, it says that he danced before the Lord. Uh, I think that's in 1 Samuel. Uh, there's the occasion where Mir Miriam, uh, prophetess, uh, uh, took some women and they danced uh, in the book of Exodus after they came, out of the, came through the Red Sea and they were celebrating that. And so these are occasions of great joy and times of celebration and there's just the dancing that occurs by the people of God. Now when you get to the New Testament, uh, there is uh, very scant references to dancing, and none of it occurs by godly people. Uh, it's all sort of as an aside thing. Nothing mentioned about dancing in worship or using uh, any sort of dance movements and motions as a part of the worship, uh, corporate worship process. So uh, that's what I would say. The Bible says nothing about liturgical dance. Uh, it's not commanded or even referenced in the New Testament as a form of worship. Uh, it was when the uh, Christians came together, they came together to, to study the Apostles' doctrine, to pray, to take communion, to sing, um, to give, and that's all that we have mention of. That's all that we have example of, and so the Bible simply says nothing about uh, liturgical dance. Okay. All right. Uh, I know some people do that. I've seen a yep. little bit of it on TV. Yep. And 
Uh, doesn't appeal to me much, but it's <laughs> as a uh, guy who uh, cannot dance, <laughs> I'm thankful that it's not something you're that rhythm <laughs> rhythm challenged. I am rhythm challenged. I'm <laughs> rhythm deficient. <laughs> All right, viewer wants to know about prayers and asks, does God answer prayers of people who are not saved? Uh, and we've gotten that question before. Does God hear the prayer of a sinner? Is usually the way it's answered. Uh, or ask, does God answer prayers of people who are not saved? My answer is sure. God answers prayers of people who are not saved. Lots of examples uh, in the Bible. Most famous one perhaps is Cornelius. Now, he was a good man. He was a God-fearing man, but he wasn't saved. Uh, he was not a Christian yet. Uh, but he prayed to God, and God heard his prayer. And what Cornelius wanted was to know what he needed to do. He was seeking God, and so God sent Peter to see him. And Peter preached to him, and in the middle of the sermon, the Holy Spirit became active. And Peter said, well, it's all right with God if we baptize these people. And so they baptized Cornelius and the adults in his house, and he became a Christian. So God answered his prayer. He heard his prayer and answered him. Uh, and there are other examples of people who weren't saved being heard by God. Now, the, people, the reason some folks think God doesn't hear a sinner's prayer or they teach people that is because of a misconception or an out-of-context verse, probably is a better way to say it, uh, the story of the blind man in John chapter 9. Now, let me tell you the story before we put the verse up. Uh, Jesus healed a blind man. And the Pharisees and Sanhedrin were trying to disprove Jesus. They were trying to prove he was uh, evil instead of good. So they called this blind man in and they said, who did this for you? Who did this to you? And so he told them, this guy Jesus. And so they started asking questions about where he was from and who is he and what is he, an evil guy and all that. And the blind man is, this is one of the funniest verses in the New Testament, John 9.30. Uh, they're trying to ask, is this guy from God or not? And the blind man says this in John 9.30. The man answered and said to them, well, here's an amazing thing, that you don't know where he's from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know God doesn't hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. The blind man's theology was, if this guy's from Satan... He asked God to heal my eyes, and God healed him. And you don't know where he's from? <laughs> if he's getting answers from God, he can't be evil. He can't be a sinner. He's got to be a good man. Okay. Well, that little phrase there, we know God doesn't hear sinners, is not good theology. It's a good reason for what they're talking about there. But God does hear sinners. He hears everything. He doesn't promise to answer sinners' prayers. He promised to answer his children's prayers, but he hears everything. And there's a lot of examples of God hearing sinners' prayers or people who weren't saved and answering them. And so, yes, sure, he does hear them. I think it's the New American Standard that in that verse that you brought up, I think it says something like, now that is remarkable. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> pretty, pretty funny. Yeah, you're right. A very, very amusing statement. Uh, yep. <laughs> All right. Uh, trivia question for the day. Who was known as a reckless driver? Well, old Jehu is the guy in Second <laughs> Kings 9.20. In fact, that's another funny verse in the Bible. Uh, Jehu's going out and the watch, watchman is watching him and Jehu's driving the chariot. And it says in verse 30, the lookout reported... He has reached them, but he isn't coming back either. 
the driving is like that of Jehu, <laughs> son of Nimshi. He drives like a madman. <laughs> so Jehu was a reckless driver. He drove like a madman. So, Road rage is a biblical hey, thing now, right? Thing. All right. We're glad you've been with us today. We're out of time, but we'll invite you to be back with us for some more questions next week on Know Your Bible. Thanks for being with us, and we hope you have a great week. Know Your Bible has been presented by the Churches of Christ in your area. Churches of Christ are non-denominational and each congregation is an independent group of Christians seeking to do God's will. Our goal is simple New Testament Christianity. We follow the Bible as our only guide. Contact us with any questions and we encourage you to visit a Church of Christ near you.